0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I am here with another thrilling guest. You know, I've really been fortunate to have some amazing people on the show, and my guest this week is no different. He has been in the education field for a long time. He has seen some things. We're going to talk about all of that and his new book, Larry Strauss. Larry, how are you? Great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I, I have to give huge props to anybody who is willing to even get into the world of education these days, let alone somebody who stayed in it so long and worked really specifically in the areas that you have. What was the thing that that made you say, yeah, this is what I want to do?
1: Um, I, think I, I think I was all, probably always born to be a teacher, not born to be a teacher, but from an early age, I think I was... Uh, I, I was destined to be good at it um, I grew up with uh, with a brother with severe um, cognitive disabilities and it made me patient and persistent and it really like made me a teacher from a very early age He was older than me but you know but I became the older brother in many ways uh, so I think that but i never i never thought about that as my as a career, I was uh, in my twenties. I was trying to make it as a writer. Uh, I wrote for uh, the Transformers first generation cartoon show, and I wrote some. I did some sitcom work, and and, and then I wrote. I ghost wrote a, a bunch of books, and I, I was trying to do my own stuff too. And um, and then I actually. Actually, I actually had a, a pretty big movie sale of one of my novels, and I thought, like, this is it. I've turned the corner. You know, I am a successful writer, and I mean, I happen to have been wrong, <laughs> <laughs> The the movie never got made, and, and I never had anything like that. You know, six-figure advance on anything, even nothing close to that since then. But I mean, at the time, I thought I had this this fake existential crisis, like, oh, you know, this is all there is, mm-hmm. and so uh, I just I found myself gravitating to. I'd actually been supplementing my income by tutoring, by doing private tutoring, and I, I, I kind of got the idea, like, well, maybe I maybe I could be a good teacher, and now that i now that I've beat this writing thing, I thought. And, uh, you know, and I was wrong about both. I mean, I was I was really not a very good teacher at first, but uh, I don't think there are too many people who are. It's really, really hard to get good at it. It takes a while. And um, one of the things i benefited from as a writer and as a teacher is delusion, is is my own delusional thinking, Mm -hmm. Uh, thinking I'm better than I am at the moment so that I don't get too despairing sure. only in retrospect. Can I go like, yeah, I wasn't very really good then, <laughs> but by then, but by then I was pretty good. Or at least I thought, I guess when you're delusional, you never know for sure.
0: Well, I think we sometimes need to paint that picture to help us carry through those rough interim. Times.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting because that was seemed like a very natural progression then for you to, to take that field.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, 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 uh, but again, you know, it was it was a shock. It's mm-hmm. it's an it's a shock, I think, for a lot of people, to go in, actually into a classroom, uh, especially if you've been in a university program that's preparing you for the classroom. That's the worst preparation you can get because it just doesn't it doesn't, and even if they do a good job of explaining what it's going to be like, you don't know until you're until you're there in that moment, and um, so you know it so it took it took a while but uh, but I say you know within a, within a few years I knew that I could get good at it then the thing that was upsetting which I think I see this in a lot of young teachers is the frustration of knowing you could do so much more and you just don't have time you're just that's what causes the burnout is I think young people get into teaching because they loved school themselves and they were very successful at it. Right. And they're used to being getting A's and being great at everything. And they're not great at it. And then they get angry because they start to realize the reason I'm not great at it is it's impossible to do everything I realize can be done for these kids. Like every kid needs, you know, six hours of my time a day or I, i not need, well, yeah, could benefit yeah. from it. And right. I can, I only have so much of me to give them. I was just talking to my principal today about we have a, um, for the first time we have a psychiatric social worker in our school. It's a, yeah, it's like a revolutionary thing in the inner city to have that and of course we've needed it all along. And, um, she happens to be a former student of mine, which, you know, it's, uh, you know, I can't tell you how happy that, that makes me, you know, she was like a great student and just a great person. And for her to be working in our school is, you know, is very gratifying to see. Mm-hmm. To, uh, uh, but, you know, and I've already, I've referred numerous, <clears throat> numerous students to her who I knew or know are going through, you know, just terrible trauma. Over, you know, very, you know, their things that happen to them, you know, things they've witnessed, uh, things they've that have happened to their family, uh, particularly during COVID. I mean, uh, and I, I've learned as an English teacher and someone who helps students applying to college and writing personal essays, I, I learn a lot of these things. And, you know, so I've referred a number of students, and I was talking to the principal, I said, we are. it's like we need we need a second you know we need one a psychiatric social worker for half the students you know, yeah. in the school and we have one and you know i asked her like i hope you're not feeling burned out and she's you know she's able to she's able to modulate her expectations of what she can do for each of them but uh, but it is overwhelming and uh, it's
0: overwhelming you know, for teachers too. So just the sheer volume of kids that need that kind of assistance is probably you just looking at your schedule and going, wow, I can't breathe.
1: Yeah, yeah. Really, the clever teachers figure out ways to get the students, you know, to help each other too. I mean, if you can do that, if you can get that going so that the pressure is not as much on you, uh, but that doesn't, it doesn't always work. Right. Like every every group of students, it's kind of like a, a, a no, every novel. I remember, uh, I think, Dr. O, who wrote Ragtime and many other great novels and stories. You know, he said, every book is this, every, you're a new writer. Every novel, you're a new writer. You have to find your way. It's not, I mean, unless you're a formulaic, you know, writer in a genre. Uh, if you're trying to write literature, every every work is is new. I guess, for an actor, every character, I mean, you have your skill, but you're starting over in a way. And I think that's true with teaching, too. Every class of students is unique.
0: And and you have to adapt very quickly to what the needs of the students are. It can't be this is our curriculum and this is you're just going to sit there and learn it if the kids aren't learning, especially in the inner cities where they haven't had maybe the greatest education by the time they've gotten to you. Uh You've really got your work cut out for you on on every student you deal with. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, you absolutely can't. Um, I was having an argument with my assistant principal about, you know, wanting, wanting uh, every month me to hand in a, a plan of what I'm going to do that month. And I said, you know, I know what to do, but I don't know. I don't always know in advance where things are going to go. I want to respond to the kids. It's not the class isn't going to be the same as it was last year. I'm, I'm adapting to the world has changed. Their world has changed. They're different from the cohort I taught last year. And so, you know, after 30 years, I have I have a pretty big toolbox at a pretty big library. And, you know, and a lot of times I pull from things I've used before. And sometimes it just it requires me to pull out something new. I, I just did that. You know, the other day, I mean, based on this student interest and and strengths and weaknesses, you know, I was like, you're going to read that story and I'm going to ask them about this. So, you know, like at a certain level, you know, you have to trust your son. There's an there's an improvisational quality to it also.
0: I really I like that, though, because that is the kind of thing that you'll you are far more likely to actually reach the kids and inspire them to work hard and learn and turn out to be something, as opposed to the kids that you lose because you have to follow the formula.
1: Yeah, I feel, and a lot in a lot of schools, teachers don't have that kind of freedom. Uh, certainly, new teachers, I think it's harder for them to fight for that kind of freedom. I don't, you know, I I don't have a problem fighting about it. I have I have enough cred that I can get an administrator to back down on those things, but. For new teachers, it's unfortunate that they get forced into these, you know, into these, you know, teaching from the textbook that it was written by people who maybe know something about teaching and learning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, may, but they don't know your kids. They don't know your students. And, uh, you know, English textbooks are always, always just, I've never been inspired by them very much. I. I you know I just think like you don't first of all you don't want to read literature out of a giant tome you know and you want to read it out you want to hold a, a book in your hand and read it and, like you know have a kind of intimate relationship with that you know that that book that's your book and not some giant thing with small print on it.
0: It, it does make a big difference in the connection that you have with what you're reading. I think you absorb it better. It becomes a more personal experience. You invest mm-hmm. in that story more.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah right. And then, and then, you know, I love the luxury I mean, Since, since, uh, since so much is available now on the internet, you know, everything that's, that's uh, past its copyright expiration, you know, Shakespeare to, you know a lot of Hemingway. It, it's you can just you can uh, download it and uh, and print it out, which yeah you know, does use a lot of paper, but it, it enables students to to write on it too, which is which is also, you know, uh, if you're studying it, it's it's good to be able to annotate the text. So, um, you know, so the tech I mean, unfortunately, in our state, there there was a lawsuit many years ago called the uh, which. A girl named Chandra Williams graduated high school. I think it was up in Oakland. She graduated high school, couldn't read, could not read at all. And her family sued. And one of the one of the uh, issues that was brought up in the trial was that she'd had many classes where they, she was not issued a textbook. Mm-hmm. And so that became a legal point. Well, she didn't have a textbook. She didn't learn how to read. Which is for an educator, that's nonsense. I mean, if the reason she didn't read was she was not given anything to read on a piece of paper or in a in a novel or a book, then yes. But to say it had to be this textbook that was approved by the state—that you know—that it's like that response to the lawsuit is like just so antithetical to teaching and learning. So now every kid in the state has to have the public school has to have a. Data proof textbook in every core class. And while while a textbook may make sense in some classes, I don't know. I, I'm not an expert in those subjects. Uh in English, it's 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 not. It's uh there are there are teachers who who work well out of a textbook. Um in college, uh well, colleges have that scam where the teacher writes the textbook or <laughs> right, the and supplements their income, um, but uh, but in you know in English class it just it doesn't it does not uh, encourage a love of reading to hand somebody a gym. Gen- so what happens is a lot of English teachers, a lot of the good English teachers, I mean they they have the textbook, they issue it, and then they kind of ignore it, and and millions of dollars get spent for this symbolic thing that's a legal
0: requirement. Right. And and with that money, you could get two or three more counselors. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I'm kind of curious how you guys ever got the board to approve a counselor in the first place.
1: Um, You know, I think uh, the last superintendent, I, I don't always speak kindly of superintendents, but the last superintendent of our school district, I think he was, I think he was very sympathetic to that issue uh, among other things. I mean, I have to say during the pandemic uh, the superintendent uh, made sure that meals were available to families okay. uh, not not only not only students you know uh, if anyone could go get a meal you know because why like if they're hungry people in the community so the school district fed people wow. and they did it they did a pretty good job of it um, and you know i i so I'm not surprised that You know, it he he's a smart guy, and he saw like a lot of students are under great stress and distressed, and uh, and, you know, uh, experiencing especially during the pandemic, there was an enormous amount of of uh, of uh, stress and trauma. Uh, Domestic violence went up. I mean, I I remember having having a student whose family fell apart like the second week that we were out of school, and the family became destitute. You know, we had actually had to help. We, we started, we raised money so that they didn't end up on the street. And, uh, so I think he, he recognized that, and, you know, to his credit, I think it was probably, he was certainly, whether it was his idea or not, um, you know, I think, you know, he certainly was, uh, was supportive of it. So. I love that. I mean, that's, that's the good news. I mean, And and that is and is a great improvement. I mean, I hope every school has someone as as good as we do. Um, You know, on the downside, people at the people who don't work with kids don't always have the best ideas about how to address what they call social emotional health of students. You know, they they'll go all right. Well, let's do some social emotional lessons, or you know, it's just it's not it's not. Well thought out, you know. It's social emotional. Dealing with social emotional health is something you do every minute of the class. I mean, it's it's not something you do. It's not a separate thing. It's not an add on. You know, you're building kids' confidence in themselves.
0: But I'm sure I'm sure they Googled the top three things that they should do. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Yeah. But that's the problem. Is I think I think people that. Do want to help? Don't always know how, and so they try. And you know, I, I love the idea of wanting to help, and I love what you guys did at your school. I agree. I hope more people do that because we really all need to work together to make. The oh yeah, I mean,
1: just just today I was, well, I was telling I was I was explaining to the students in my advanced placement literature class why they were going to have to take. Uh, all these standardized tests this year is in past year. Seniors didn't even have to take these tests. And now they're making us give these tests to these kids, which are, you know, in many ways, these tests are beneath them. Like it's not, they don't need, they're going to take the AP test. They just took the SAT test. Those are, those are difficult tests, which, you know, you can sure measure them by that. These are these are more rudimentary tests that are supposed to, you know, they're supposed to identify if we're failing to meet the basic needs of kids, educationally. All these kids in this classroom are well past that, but they have to take it anyway because it's a mandate. And I was explaining to them, okay, these things are political. Data is political. I was giving them a whole talk about, you know, how people in positions of power in various institutions and politicians, they like numbers. They can say that went up five percent. It went down five percent. They like numbers. The real measure of whether we're successful with students are is it's it's more abstract. It's more nuanced, and you have to have an imagination. And politics doesn't do well with that stuff. So I was explaining all this to them, you know. And then I said, by I said, by the way, last year you guys took a ver- a, a, a test. You know, you were tested. And I said, you guys knocked it out of the park. Like you made us look really good. Ninety-two percent of <laughs> of your class uh, was proficient or advanced in this test, which is you know a staggeringly high number for the for L.A. period, much less South L.A. Right. And I said, <clears throat> I said, you know, you made us look like superstars. I said, I don't know how much the teachers could take credit for it, or how much of it is you guys, but. Uh, you know, but you guys really, you know, you really did a great job, especially considering, you know, you're stuck at home, crowded home. I mean, just all the all the all the uh, obstacles. And I said, you know, I said, only eight percent of you, you know, only eight percent. I said, I'm sure there's no one in this room right now who's in that. Age. And this girl, you know, sort of half jokingly said, no, I'm sure I'm in the eight <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> you know, And, you I know, I said, no, you're not. And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. I am you know, and then we, so we started having, we started talking about confidence and I started, I, I said, you know, confidence is, uh, it's something you have to work at. And then the other kids were like, yeah, yeah. No, I don't have any of that. Like half the room is saying, basically
0: <laughs>
1: I have no confidence in myself at all. I'm insecure. I work hard because I'm scared not to, but I have no confidence, you know, and then, you know, I, I, I talked to them a little bit about how to, What do you do? What do you do if you're not confident? Well, obviously other people can, you know, if you get enough encouragement, and praise, that helps. And then I said, you know, sometimes if you pretend, if you pretend you're confident, sometimes, sometimes that can help. You can start. Sometimes we think we think we we need to get something right internally and then externally will be right. Sometimes it works the opposite. When I, when I, when I started teaching our school was, was, was uh, at risk, almost all at risk students, been, many of whom have been kicked out of other schools, were in this criminal justice system, gang affiliation. And whenever we go on a field trip, we'd make them dress up, make them wear, you know, shirts and ties and, and, uh, you know, uh, slacks or dress, you know, we'd make them dress up and. The idea was, if you're externally look a certain way, you're going to act more like that, and it, it was true. It did work, mm-hmm. and so, I, so, you know, I was explaining, and I said, uh, I said, you know, by the way, when I make a phone call, like if I have to call somebody on business, and I'm calling a hotel about my reservation, the whatever it is, any call at all about anything, someone in the school district, the first thing when I when they pick up the phone, I tell them my name even though they don't know who I am. I said, but you know, you don't want to call and say, um, uh, what, uh, you know, you don't, you don't want to stumble around. So you say, you know, hello, this is Larry Strauss. And, you know, and then I launched into it. I told him that I said, you tell them your name, because when you tell them your name, you're saying to them, I'm somebody yep. you should know who I am. I'm, you know, and they're looking at me like, you can do that. Like, yeah, you can do that. You can you can tell them your name. And if you say that, like you, like they should know who you are, you'll you'll start to feel more like that. Uh, but so, you know, there's a social emotional lesson. It wasn't a, it wasn't planned. It wasn't a separate add on. It just kind of came out of the class. And often these things, often things like that don't happen with the whole class. They happen individually it happened between you know the teacher and the, you know when i'm consulting with a student when they're working on something they ask me a question every interaction should be about you know helping build their self-esteem their confidence um you know and they're you know and they're developing their skills and and really the most the best the best way to be confident is to be competent so mm-hmm. you know if you're if we're if we're doing a good job you know, ultimately that's going to help with their, you know, social, emotional health. too.
0: Well, I think one thing that's really been a repeating theme on my show, when I talk to different people, whether they're actors or authors or directors, is if you let things breathe, if you let things come out naturally, you know, you'll find those moments if you try and stick to a curriculum or, you know, too hard to a script you miss mm. out on some of those magical things that can make the biggest difference. So I love that you do that.
1: Mm. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. That is a, that's a great analogy. You, you have to, you know, like I, I tell students about, right. You got to have the flow. You yeah. got to have the flow. You got to, you know, you have to ultimately impose some order on the flow. And the more you, the more experience you get, the, the easier it is for you to do that while you're, writing but sometimes you just have to go back and you know and and, but you keep but you don't find things unless you're free you don't find the great the best moments unless you're free
0: absolutely true and it it does writing is a great example of that too because if you're if you're too busy editing yourself while you're writing you're ruining Mm -hmm. your book yeah 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 as you know because you're on is this your fifth book now
1: it's my fifth yeah i mean I, i i i like to i like to sound you know, I like to say it's my fifth book. It's my fifth published book.
0: Published book, right. <laughs> it's my,
1: yeah. The other 20 <laughs> languishing in a box, which I may, you know, the, the the interesting thing about that is my, let me think, my fourth novel, Now's the Time, I originally wrote it in the late 80s and then came back to it in the like around 2007 or 2008 and uh, with a whole new perspective. so yeah that was an old book that I almost given up on and then I gave it new life and, and I, it became so much better just so and the same thing Light man the new one I'd written this thing so in so many different versions so many different ways I, I actually I actually had kind of concluded at one point this is just not because it's 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 the most autobiographical thing I've I, I've ever written. And, you know, so, of course, my first versions were when I was very young and they were, you know, extremely indulgent and, you know, just not not really worthy of anyone reading. Sure.
0: I I can't say I haven't done that a few times myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can identify. Yeah.
1: But but I mean, what's the evolution of I mean, if I was a if I was like a great writer, it would be interesting for me to, to kind of track the evolution of this book. You know, if, if, if that was, if I was the kind of writer that people studied, it would be, it was, this would be an interesting one because of how the, 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 the story evolved and the characters evolved. And, you know, to I mean, it started out with being my family. It was like, there was, there was, a mother and a father and two sons. And one of them was severely brain damaged. So I, and the mother's an actress the father's, a, you know, I mean, it was very close, <laughs> excuse me. And, uh, and then I, you know, switching points of view and then, and then suddenly like the character, of the father changed. He just, be, he became this, he became this other guy. That is very that not at all like my father. It's it's kind of more like what my father might have wished he was, mm. although not not in a glamorous way at all. Right. Like my father, my father was was the nicest person I ever knew. He was. I mean, people tell me I'm a nice person, and I'm like, no. Like you got to meet. <laughs> you should have met my father. Like I'm I am, like. 10% as nice and generous and gracious as he was. Wow. And, and although, but he would, but he, he, I mean, he had no pride at all in that. You know, he wanted to be, he wanted to kick people's ass. He wanted to be a, like, a, he wanted to express his anger. He wanted to get in people's faces. You know, he was not, uh, he was not that kind of guy. And, um, but I know he you know in some, on some level he wanted to be although of course he was conflicted about it you know I mean because he was deep down a really good person but it's um, it's
0: tough when you're when you're a person that really does have a good heart and you really want to show some muscle At yeah, some point, yeah. I like I've, I've had moments where maybe uh, as an example all right that's it I've had it with this company I'm going to let them have it and I'll call up and I'll get somebody on the phone and I'm just like my body is tense and I'm ready to go and I'll be like Hi, um, I'm sorry to bother you. I just had a question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, exactly. it's so hard to not well, do that.
1: Right. Especially, right. You hear the voice of some poor person, uh, you know, like you're angry at some company or something and you're like ready to, you know, rip someone a new one. And then the person on the other end of the phone, it suddenly hits you like, oh, yeah, this person this is a low wage worker who's right, working in yeah. this company. I cannot let it out on them. Um but anyway, so this the character who became the father character, Mike is, you know, so, you know, he's so different and yet in some ways he's, I mean, he's also, my father was, a, was, a you know, very educated, articulate man. Mike is more crude and, uh, I mean, he's smart, but he's, uh, you know, he's much more, much rougher around the edges and, uh, you know, I mean, he's like, he's a light, he's a light man. That's the title. My my father was a, was a, uh, was a music guy. And I, uh I, I, you know, I, that was, that was the character for many, uh for many drafts of this, but uh the light man I found much more interesting. And, uh, and he's, uh, you yeah, know, but he doesn't really, he's really good at technically and he's able and he understands what he's told to do, but. Like he doesn't really understand the plays, you know, he describes Chekhov as, you know, a bunch of Russians (laughs) drinking, drinking tea and, you know, getting on each other's nerves, which actually is. I mean, that is what you see on the stage, but this is, of course, a lot more Chekhov's work than that than that. He's, he's kind of a simple guy.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think anybody things. would have been studying that or doing term papers on it if it was just a couple guys sitting around yeah. drinking tea, you know. No. Uh, right. But I like that you kept the uh, the setting authentic to the original because it's set in 1973, so yeah. this this was a, you know, obviously the time frame of it was very important to the story.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, the, I mean, I think when that was uh, that was the, those were the years when I was in the streets of New York you know, on my own as a 13, 14, 15 year old. And the, uh, it's, it's left an indelible impression on me. You know, the, the, you know, the adventure and the uncertainty, the volatility, um, of course it's great preparation for being a high school teacher again, because you know, I don't, I don't. And now after 30 years of being a high school teacher, I mean, my startle, my startle um, impulse—not impulse. What's the word? My my startle um, reaction is almost dulled to nothing. It takes very—it takes a lot to get me like startled to get my heart beating. I mean, that actually worries me because I mean, I'm you know sometimes I'm worried I don't respect danger, you know, (laughs) because I've I've chased guys off the campus who had guns.
0: Wow. I, I was going to say, yeah, if there was an imminent threat like somebody pulls out a gun in class, I would think that some part of you would react to that, but uh that you just shut that down. <laughs>
1: oh no, I would react. No, no, I would react, but I'm just saying like I would not like that fear that that paraly I mean it's I don't know, in a way it's good. You don't have to paralyze them fear. Right. Because you can act, you know, you can act more, more you know, quickly and and decisively. But um yeah, they a, a few months ago. My wife and I were out looking for. Uh, we have the, there's this thing, buy nothing, where uh, uh, on Facebook you you're in a particular neighborhood. You offer up things that you want to get rid of, and other people who want those things say, "I'll take it." And you leave it outside. It's like a whole network. Okay. Of, we we've gotten some great stuff. We've given away some stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting. Anyway, we're, we're looking, we're, we went to a house to pick up, I don't know, a house plant or something that somebody was giving away and it was night and it you know, it was a dark street. We couldn't find the address and we're looking around with our phones. We've got our GPS's, and like the blue dot is here and the house is, and nothing makes sense. And we're standing in the middle of the street and I see shadow, I see three shadows and I, I think like, well, there's only two of us. So, and one of the shadows is behind me, and the moon is, um, and the moon is behind me. So I'm thinking, if there's a shadow behind me, there's somebody standing behind me. Right. And I turn, and there's a guy standing, like two feet away from us, just staring at us. He looks, he looks a little bit mentally ill. And uh, you know, and I remember, like, I just turned to. him. And I did not, it was like, no, my, my wife, like, you know, he jumped and I just turned and I, and I just asked him where this address was. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, do you know where this is? And he barked at me and ran away.
0: Huh?
1: So, um, anyway, <laughs> um, but, uh, so, so yeah, so this this character, I found him much more interesting. And then, and then, lo and behold, a minor character from an old from an old draft, a guy who. Um, so Mike Mike is a light man, but he's he met his wife, who's an actress, when she was doing checkoff, and she was they were they were touring, and they were in Poughkeepsie, which is where he grew up, he doing the lights there, and they fell in love. He, you know, he sort of made love to her with a. With a with one of the theatrical lights, you know, he's like lighting her on the stage, and, and you know they they uh, they got to know each other, and so he had, he he goes with her, and he ends up back in New York, but he can't get inside the theater because the union has rules about you know you have to you have to start out an apprentice, and then you have to work. And anyway, he ends up outside the theater running the spotlights, and. You know, bitter guy who knows he's he can do that job, and they're better than those guys. But, you know, the union's keeping them out. Uh, and so I had this I had this other this character walks up literally in one of the drafts. I just had this guy walk up and you know ask him for a cigarette, I think, and start talking to him because this guy's this guy's got to pass out photo processing coupons at night in the street. And he's bored, and so he starts a conversation with him. And Mike, at first, like, like, keep moving, buddy. But then eventually, he, you know, he's kind of lonely too. And and so, you know, I had I, I had a few scenes in in this draft of the book with these two guys talking. And then, anyway, Al became the narrator. That guy Al became the narrator of the novel. Like, wow. he, he sort of made his prominence known. Yeah, and. So that's I mean. like it evolved. This this whole thing evolved, and then and in one draft, the kids, the two, the, the 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 boy, the younger boy, the one based on me, was the was the protagonist. And I thought, well, how clever I am, you know, I'm a five year old protagonist. But but it wasn't really, you know, it's just it's it's really 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 hard to make a five year old's point of view interesting enough to to carry a novel, uh, maybe a short story, maybe a, I mean, I've seen it done brilliantly by other writers, but I'm not for a whole novel. I mean, I, at least I haven't, maybe somebody has read that book
0: yet, but if you, if you're making it a children's story and I'm thinking of, uh, there was a book by Stephen King called the girl who loved Tom Gordon. And it was all about this little girl who was lost in the woods and just fascinated with this baseball player. You can do it, I think, if you make it a children's story, not in the mm-hmm. way of like, you know, you know, the, it, the book has golden edges and it's got a cartoon picture. I don't mean a children's book that way, but I mean, it's where the story is really about the child. I think you can, but boy, it's tricky.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, my thing was like, I, I, I thought I had an interesting story to tell because <clears throat> my, you know, as I say, my brother had these severe disabilities and he was diagnosed autistic, schizophrenic, and epileptic, but I've always I've always felt like those labels are just a little. I mean, I I know it's scientific, but they're a little arbitrary. Like it doesn't yeah. like when I when I used to see my brother with uh, with other people who were di- similarly diagnosed. I always felt like they're all just you know suffering in their own way. Like they're yeah. each each is. Each of these people is unique to their illness, to their disability. Excuse me. And, you know, we're just trying to group them together and make sense out of what we don't entirely understand.
0: Well, don't you think we do that with everything, though? I mean, probably (laughs) thrown around today, like an anti-vaxxer means that you're against the government. It means you think the earth is flat. Like we we put these people into buckets, you know?
1: That's true. That's true. And and everyone, right, everyone who's... uh, uh, right. A- and anti- the anti-vaxxers started with um, started with people, I, th- I think I think a lot of it started with people who had autistic children, mm-hmm. you know, and and I, I have to say, I, you know, on that subject and related to the book, too. I, I had a, I had an autistic um, student who graduated from our school last year and he was in my class for three, three years. Uh, yeah, three years in a row. And I mean, I mean, he did great. You know, it was a, it was a real success story that he got through our school, graduated with honors. He's now at at Long Beach State University, which is, you know, not, a, not, not an easy school to get into and uh, really a success story. And I went to, I was, I was asked to go to attend his last IEP meeting, which is, you know, where the parents, a teacher and psychologists, counselors, administrators, everybody gets together and sees that his IEP, which is individual education plan, which every special ed student gets and entitles them to services. And it's very strictly legally, um, you know, enforced these things. The special ed laws are no joke. And the administrators know that too. They know they get a lot of trouble if if they violate. And so we're in this meeting, and and the administ- everybody, all the, the all the school people think this is going to be a celebration. This is his exiting out meeting. We're going to say, like, look at this. Look how far he's come. And now he's going to college. Like, they were thinking, like, it's just going to be this joyful thing, and everyone's going to be crying with joy. And that's not what happened at all. What happened was the mother started lashing out at everybody for not taking care of her son, for, for not meeting those requirements. And people started getting defensive. I mean, and, and rightly so. She was she was she was making accusations that were just not true. Uh-huh. You know, and, and but after a while I had to start I started texting my administrators. Like, do you understand what's going on here? You know, this woman is terrified. This school is the only good thing that ever happened to her son. I mean, he was he was bullied, he was ostracized alienated his whole life yeah he had no friends until he got to our school and she's terrified he's leaving us now this is this is this is the only you know place where he's felt comfortable outside of his you know outside of his family and he has to go out in the world she's terrified he she has to he has to go be an adult she doesn't think he's ready you think he's ready because he's ready to leave you but he's not going to be your responsibility anymore yeah. She is. And so she's acting irrationally because she's alone. She and she knows she's alone. And I think, you know, like what, what happened to my parents in the fifties being, you know, having a child like that, nobody's there for you. And now, of course, now there's much more. There's, there's, you know, now you get an IEP and you get all these services, but you know what? I think this, this boy's mother felt a lot like, how my parents felt and how other people with with uh, children like that feel it's the worst thing you feel powerless and feel so bad that your child has to struggle and suffer in the world and so to me to lash out at childhood vaccines is you know is entirely understandable Mm -hmm. to lash out at anyone and anything is understandable it's not it's not a rational thing and I don't know, like maybe if maybe if we did a better job of making people with children like this, you know, feel deal with it and feel like, you know, you're part of a community and those your child is my child too. Your child we're they're are our our children. It's not like you have a child who's struggling and look at everyone else's child that seems perfect to you. I mean, my my mother my mother used to absolutely you know, she, she, she confessed. I mean, it's one of her, something she's ashamed of, but, but proud to admit was how angry she felt at normal children. When, when my brother was suffering the most, right. you know, my mother, my mother did a season on Sesame street. I didn't know and, that. And, yeah. And uh, she was, she played Molly, the male, mo- Molly, the letter carrier,
0: huh. And,
1: and she, and she was, she said, you know, it was really hard for her because those kids were so sweet. She really, she really loved working with them. But at the same time, it's just like it was like they were sticking knives in her with their right precociousness. And, you know, it was just hard. It was hard because her son, her son, you know, and, and uh, it's just so painful. And, and I tried to I tried to 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 put that feeling into. You know these two characters in the novel, um, Mike and Arlene, parents, and Arlene is an actress who is able. She's, she's she's able to put her her angst, her her rage, her her shame, and you know, everything, all that 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 torture chamber of emotion into uh, you know. Uh, an audition. She, she, she takes a cattle call audition for uh, an insecticide, and she lets it all out of them. Imaginary roaches in the audition, <laughs> and she not only gets she not only gets hired. She becomes a like a folk hero in New York. I like because, that because she's you know she's saying what everyone's feeling. There, everyone's the city's overrun with garbage and pestilence, and and she's you know it's not just it's not just like I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Like in network, it's not, just, it's, it's more complex than that. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, you know, I'm suffering and I want to, I want to get through this and I want to, and I don't know what to do. And, you know, it's the, that overwhelmed feeling.
0: Well, I think the important thing that, that people should really take away from this story uh, that uh that you told about the lady with the college is that, you paid enough attention to care about what she was really saying instead of just taking her words and going, well, she's just pissed off or she's a bitch or whatever Right? you identified the truth behind what was happening. I think that's what we're missing in this world. I think people just immediately judge and react and they don't step back and and take a moment and really think.
1: Yes. Thank you. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, You know, and that goes for, just all of all of our divisions, you know, yeah. that, that there's there a lot of the anger. The You know, we people people watch these videos of angry people doing inappropriate, absurdly immature things. And, and you know, and and it's like it's it's like stopping to look at a car accident. And, you know, oh, look, that guy's head is over there. Bodies over, you know, it's just, it's just something. There's something a little, um, you know, uh, it's, it's it's just and it's it's lazy. It's just it's emotionally lazy. It's yeah. easy to just feel contempt and superiority toward people who act that way. And I'm guilty of it too. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, we, we
1: I mean, all—we all—it's easy, right? It's easy to do, and it's—it's it's on some level, it's satisfying. Although ultimately, it's—it's it's very empty. But yeah, can we can we dig a little deeper? Yeah. And say, you know, they're people, and something has happened to them.
0: Well, what's really sad is look at the number of hits those videos get.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just. Yeah, I mean it's it's no different than, you know, watching somebody um you know, fall off a skateboard, you know, and which I watch too. <laughs> I mean, Dumb stuff on wheels. I mean, there's there is something
0: there's a difference that, between people doing something stupid and people who are going through something and being yeah, laughed at.
1: That's true, right, right. If you're just like, you know, young and you think you're invincible and you gotta learn that lesson. Right. But if you're yeah, if you're losing it, and I, I've seen that. I've seen it in my. I've seen it in my school. I've seen teachers flip, like completely flip. Oh, sure. Become. I, we had a teacher taken out of the school in handcuffs one day. Wow. And, and you know, and there's no joy in it. I mean, us aside from just the trauma of what the students had to go through, seeing that, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's sad said. I mean they, they were once they were once, you know, productive, competent people and something something happened to them. And we all need to be humble about the fact that, you know, they was what's the my mother used to say there but for the grace of God go out, whether you believe in God or not. It's you know, it could be you. It could yeah. be me. We're not none of us is immune to uh You know, when stuff happens, something, you know, when we're struck by whatever it is, bad luck or, you know, maybe maybe one bad judgment,
0: you know. And that's all it takes to set you on a path, you know, especially if you couple it with like you were saying in in, earlier in our conversation, lacking the confidence. Um, There's reasons that people became factory workers and you know, house cleaners because they didn't believe in themselves. I, and I say that in, in yeah. general. I know there's people that just fell into that kind of work or loved that mm-hmm. work. Yeah. But I think the majority of the people that did work like that or do, you know, simple office jobs today, you just fall into it because you don't push. You don't think you can. Yeah. You don't believe. Well, in yourself. Right. Right.
1: And then also just po- poverty is just sure. hard to get out of. I, I have. Yeah. I've seen students who just, you know, they, they end up dropping out of college because of money. You know, because they're not. I think we. I think it's easy to get the misimpression that if a if a if someone in poverty gets a you know, gets is a great student and gets into college that they're going to get a get a scholarship. But while that happens, and it happens every year to a number of my students, it doesn't happen to all of them. True. There just there just isn't enough, or you know the they're, they're, you know, and, and every school has its students, and and uh, and some of them just uh, just don't make it. So yeah, I think you know I think we have to respect that. But you know, I, I, you're talking about going down, you know, one mistake or one stroke. We a lot. I mean, in, in a sense, uh, uh, the, the the in the book, the character Mike, uh, you know, it's what happens to him. You know, he gets dealt to hand. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't know what to do about his son. He is. He is. Uh, he is emotionally unprepared for all he knows. All he knows is he's. It's his job to fix him, and this is a guy who can. You know, he's not only brilliant at doing theater lights. He can fix. He can fix your toaster. He can fix your broken TV. Mm-hmm. You know, this back in the seventies people didn't know didn't always just throw things out and replace them. Yeah. People people repaired things and he's he's fixes everything for everyone in his building. It's his little side business. Uh, but he can't fix his broken son. Yeah. And and he uh he ultimately he ultimately does lash out about it. And you know and the and uh his friend Al has to try has to try to bring him back from the edge but you know that it it it, I, i ended up getting into this was you know all new in this draft i ended up getting into the whole idea the whole conspiracy idea too
0: well i have to think that you know there's a reason that the book didn't feel right to you but there was something enough substance in it that you didn't let it go either
1: yeah no i i knew it was an interesting story i just you know i guess because it's autobiographical i think that's always dangerous maybe not always maybe for some people it's not a, a, a dangerous thing for me it always has been the it's just hard not to be as, as indulgent and in, in, you know to, to have perspective and yeah. of course you know I'm, I'm i'm old enough now that i hopefully have enough perspective that i know what's interesting about my story and what's maybe interesting to me, but not so much to someone who hasn't lived my story or doesn't know me. And, uh, and so, yeah, there was an essence there that I knew was interesting. I mean, the, the relationship, as I described between the two brothers, um, you know, I had this older brother who was had this diagnosis. Uh, Everybody was telling, you know, giving my parents sympathy and, They were also encouraged to institutionalize him at a very young age, excuse me, but refused to do it. But, you know, but my perspective as a a small child was, I thought he was special. I mean, in a good way.
0: Right. I
1: I wanted to be like him.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I thought he was, you know, amazing. I thought he'd come from another planet or something. And he was, he could talk to a clock on the wall. And he seemed to hear things that the clock was saying. I couldn't hear the, anything from the, you know, I didn't, I didn't see magical things when I looked at a, a glass of colored liquid.
0: Was he born that way or did something happen along the way?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. You ask me that. I, I mean, as far as I know, he was born that way. Okay. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, my parents both passed on. So if there's a secret thing that happened, I will never know you know my de- my brothers passed away too. But I assume that I assume that they would have told me if there was something
0: right um, The reason that I ask and 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 I, I hope that I'm not opening a big can of worms here, but totally. it seems like you know we as people, we look at somebody who is uh, you know, born autistic or something like that, and people tend to feel sorry for those kinds of people. Because they, they don't get to experience life the way we do. But maybe we don't get to experience life the way they do. They don't know necessarily what they're missing or what they right. have that we don't have. I think it's kind of judged in a way that, that we shouldn't yeah. be feeling sorry for people necessarily.
1: Right. Not necessarily. I mean it was it was it it was it's true. It's true. We don't know what their experience is. I mean, I I I did always feel like But, yeah, I always felt bad when, you know, I got to do things that my brother didn't get to do. Mm -hmm. um, You know, and I, I, we always sensed that he knew on some level that he was smart in some ways that we didn't entirely understand. But, you know, but he certainly, he certainly did. I mean, you know, maybe in the moments where he was present, in the moments when he was present, Maybe it was hard for him, but uh, you know, but he wasn't present all the time. He was in his own world of of colors and sounds and and you know, and he's you know, we don't know if he had hallucinations or or, or not. But he, you know, in those moments, yeah, he wasn't. He didn't know what he was missing. That's that's probably true.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I know that we're uh, we're a little bit over time, but if you don't mind. Uh, I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your mom. Um, for those of you guys who are listening and, and don't know already, uh, Larry's mom was Charlotte Ray, who played uh, on the Facts of Life in Different Strokes as Mrs. Garrett. She raised a lot of children through television, uh, uh, yeah. gave comfort to a lot of people who probably didn't have as much direction. You know, that the fact that there's somebody out there who had a lot of wisdom and shared it. And uh, I think we all benefited from that.
1: I, I got an email from uh, from a man uh, in New York told me that an episode about about prom drinking mm. and you know drinking at proms that because of that episode he did not get in a car after his prom that ended up crashing and everyone died so wow he, he said the show saved his life and. You know, and I know that my, obviously my mother didn't write the show. She, she did push for, for issues. Uh, You know, she did want the show to be, uh, to be what it was, you know, to be a place where, uh, you know, teenagers could get some, uh, some solace. So I know she was, she was very proud of that. You know, as far as her acting work goes, there were other things that she was much more proud of that, that, that were more challenging. Well what was challenging about doing a show like Different Strokes and Facts of Life is you have a week to do the show. You have to learn the script, you get rewrites. I mean, it's a crazy grind. Yeah. It is Any, if you when you see actors on uh, you know on on a show, you know that they are they are working very hard. In fact, I saw I read I read a, a really good critique of one of the police dramas. I think it might have been like uh, NYPD Blue or something, which they said like the kind of the the you know the the chaotic pace of the police work, it's just really just like they're really writing about their own show. It's really this meta thing about yeah, uh, you know, they had a they had a crime story, but it's really about doing a show right like this crazy grind you
0: know that, that uh that they yeah well i i love the fact that you you kind of went in the direction of her character where you're doing the same thing that, that her character as mrs garrett did you know just help being there for people helping them trying to work towards a better life and i you know you, the people that do what you do are the people that i love in this world the most you know i love creative people but i love the people that just want to make the world a better place, whether it's one person at a time or 30 children at a time or whatever. Uh, you know, we need people to do what you do. So thank you very much. because thank you. A thank lot you. of lives are certainly better because of what you've put in.
1: Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. By the way, on a, on a, on a humorous note,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the the, um, the teacher in the classroom right next to mine, <laughs> and our doors are literally right next to each other. Um, she's a, a new teacher, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, her name starts with her last name starts with a G. Mm-hmm. It's not a long name, but for some reason, she uh, she has Miss Miss G on her door. Which <laughs> <laughs> every time I see that, I think, like God, you know, there's so much my mother missed that she would have appreciated.
0: Oh, absolutely! But, you know, yeah,
1: stuck around just a few more years. Yeah, I'm teaching next to Ms. Ms. G.
0: I wish I had had the chance to interview her. Unfortunately, she had already passed before I met Harlan, mm-hmm. so uh, I didn't get the opportunity. But I'm sure she would have been absolutely wonderful to speak with, as as you yeah. have been. I've really enjoyed this. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Larry. Thank
1: you. I have too.
0: And I I wish you the best with the book Light Man. I've got the links in the show notes, guys. Check it out. I think it's going to be a story well worth reading. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Larry. And uh, best of luck to you, my friend.
1: Thank you. You too. Thank great you. To great, great talking.
0: We'll talk again. Bye bye. There are just some people when you meet them that you know right away they're a good person. That they put a lot of positive energy into this world. And our guest today, Larry, is definitely one of those people. Thank you so much, Larry, for coming on the show. I really did have such a good time talking to you. I think we covered a lot of very important ground and I have great respect for the work that you're doing. It's not something I could do. I do not have the patience for that kind of work, but I'm glad there are people like you out there that do Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of the Haskett Cast podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, take care of yourselves, all right? Cheers.